ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast. Sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. Whether you're chasing bugles over the next ridge, sitting a stand out east, this is about passion, pursuing our dreams of field, our lifestyle, the betterment of self and community, the enlightenment that comes from those moments spent in God's creation. Through these conversations, I hope you find insight, inspiration, education, and motivation to push beyond your limits. And so, you know, excited to have you on. We we sat down last year at Expo, man, and, you know, chopped it up and then, you know, sat down, had a, a, a good dinner um, and some good discussion, man. And we had talked about it then with your with your uh, handgun hunting. And I was I was intrigued and interested and uh, things being what they are, right? Schedules and, you know, we just fall off of each other's radar. But then I saw you were over in Germany and I'm like, OK, this is perfect, right? Because. And and correct me if I'm wrong, that was a, if you will, ancestral type hunt, right? Like, hey, this is a heritage hunt here, and I want to go experience this. So I'm like, dude, that, that's bitching, right? Because there's, there's a lot of hunting heritage and history across the globe. So to go be able to do that um, and, and kind of chase your roots uh, is pretty badass, man. So why don't you... Why don't you give us a little bit of an intro, tell the folks who you are, and then, man, we'll just dive into, I want to hear about the Germany trip first, and then we'll talk about the handgun portion, man. Cool. Yeah, man. So Logan Holtz, um, you know, been, been hunting since I've been a little baby, That's kind of what I was, you know, born into and, and raised with, you know, I grew up in North, uh, Northern Wisconsin, North Central Wisconsin. Uh, in a very German family, which obviously we're going to get into in a little bit, which ties into the the German and hunting roots that guy talked about. But yeah, I grew up grew up kind of sustenance hunting more than anything, you know, just uh, feeding ourselves, putting putting food on the table, and then it just developed into addiction. And <laughs> uh, you know, now I do it as a career, and so I've worked in the uh, outdoor hunting shooting industry my entire career, and it's been been really good to me. And uh, yeah, now you know it's like anything, as you get into it more, you find ways to make it harder, right. More challenging. And that progression of, you know, I started rifle hunting and then, you know, when I was 10 years old, I started hunting big game with a bow. You know, by the time I was 12, I'd pretty been pretty proficient with a bow. Right. And then all the way through college, you know, 
hunting took a little bit of a backseat. Just school was, you know, really hard. I went to a pretty good university. And then when I started working in the outdoor industry for Cabela's right out of college, you know, again, just looking for ways to challenge myself, took on, you know, Western hunting, whereas I grew up hunting whitetail in the, the Midwest. And then this, this pistol hunting thing that we're going to cover is really, I, I've, I've taken head on over the last five years. And, you know, it's been a, it's been a process. <laughs> it's a lot harder than you might think. And I can go into detail as to, you know, how I think handgun at times is more challenging than archery hunting. So I can almost yeah, see it, dude. A, I mean, when I, when, when we talked about it initially and I'm like, man, that, you know, you see uh, guys running around with some of the older Thompsons and stuff like that, but it's few and far between. And that usually says a bit about how difficult it is. And some stuff has a marketing aspect to it, right? So, it, you know, it grows a lot faster and a lot larger over time. But yeah, I'm, I'm super intrigued on that, man. So, we'll, yeah, we'll have to delve into that and talk uh, contrast and, and things like that when it comes to archery and rifle. Yeah. The one thing on that guy is, uh, you know, you do see a lot of people like older school dudes, yeah, handgun hunting. Right. And, but, but what you don't see a lot of is people public land handgun hunting. And there's a very big distinction there. And as we, you know, we can go into more of the details, but the long and the short of it there is, you know, when you're handgun hunting, you're hunting against the rifle hunters. So when you're on public land and these people with these custom rifles can shoot, you know, a thousand yards. Now you're sitting there trying to get within 50 yards mm -hmm. and you got to wear orange and it's not during the rut typically. And there's all these layers of complexity that it's just, it's tough. I mean, handgun hunting on private land's hard enough. Then you go and try to battle the public land crowds and it's a whole different ball game. Right. So, I mean, archery hunting's getting that way during muzzleloader season. <laughs> yep. Hey, I, I'm a, I live in Colorado, man. We, we feel that every single year. Oh dude, it was this year. This year was the worst I had seen it. Well, I'll caveat that. And I was in a much easier to access, heavily roaded area hunting. Um, never, well, I shouldn't say never again. I'd be lying to say never again. I would I would have to put a little more energy into escaping them, folks. But, dude, I, I was below a camp. There was five guys with 15 muzzy tags what three tags how does it even happen because they got deer bear and elk uh, right yeah you're talking the multi you're talking the multi-species thing i thought you were saying all elk tags i was like oh no no shit i would have been in that camp would have trying to figure that out <laughs> we would have had a long discussion but it was yeah. i mean it, you know like you said it's, it's public land hunting but there is a level of frustration when you're out and you're in your assumed archery season and you have that level of disrupt it's not like you know a guy had an elk tag or a guy had a bear tag because i've i've dealt with either i mean these guys were rolling with three tags in this unit and i'm like how in the world is this even feasible during archery elk? yeah and what state was that in guy our state yeah Colorado. Yes. yeah I was going to say, like, I mean, that is the one good thing about how Colorado does it. I don't necessarily like the fact that the muzzleloader hunt is in the peak of the rut, right, right at that fall equinox every year. Uh, but what what is nice about how we do it is it's only a week, right? So there are three weeks of the archery season where you know you're going to have the woods to yourself. Well, and it just sucks. It sucks that, you know, every year it's coming, right? As the bulls start to heat up, you know, the muzzleloader hunters are going to hit the woods on their four-wheelers. Right. Well, they hit it. They hit. And where I was at, they were so thick that, you know, their week in a couple of days, because I believe that season's eight or nine days. 
Nine days. Yeah. It's two weekends in a week. And then after that week, dude, it was, I, it was, it was weird on the landscape because the animals were ghost. I mean, they were just silent, silent, silent. Yeah. Uh, not much. Well, you know, yeah. If, if any day movement, if you can catch them. Um, and it was almost eerie at points, right? Because you had all this crowd and then no one there, the animals stopped moving. And I was in a position to where my glassing spot every single day, dude, until about the middle of muzzleloader season, I was watching 12 to 15 mule deer every single day from this spot. And they were gone after that. And yeah. it was, there was points where I was like, you know what, I'm going into camp before uh, it starts getting dark because that's when, you know, the animals are out. Most of the, I'm sorry, muzzleloader hunters, and I'm not judging. Most of the guys in the morning were sitting at camp as I was getting out and getting to my area. They were sitting at camp around the fire. So most of their activity in terms of shots fired was the latter part of the day in that evening. And it was, there was one evening, dude, and it, it concerned me. Like I got back to camp and I told my wife, I go, that's the last day I'm staying out to dark. I'm, I'm going to have to cut my days short because I don't want to get shot. I'm not running around in orange. Um, I considered it, but then, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's a rough one. It's a rough one. I don't want to play yeah. judgy and start down a path. Yeah. And I mean, you don't have to go down the theoretical rabbit hole either of, I could have gotten shot because as we both know, it happened, right. Yeah. And it happens. Yeah. Um, so and then, you know, I, I do like that, you know, in Colorado, there was talks about having to bow hunters having to wear orange during the muzzleloader season. And it's like, no, 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 no. And the CBA, Colorado Bow Hunters Association, they did, and Henry over there, they did a really good yeah. job of pushing back against that and yep. saying, no, 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 no. Like, if you're talking safety, then have the muzzleloader season after archery, especially since, you know, our week gap delay in between Dude, seasons got perfect. longer. There's a room for it. It's yeah, perfect. there's room for it. Yeah. But that, let's not go down there. We'll save that one for another. Yeah, day. I mean, I, I will end it and say that is a, a a perfect opportunity for those guys to go out and have the woods to themselves. I would be willing to sacrifice a couple three days. People are going to go for you a couple of three days at the end of archery season to give them a little extension on their season. I would be willing to sacrifice that to pull them out of that archery time frame. Yep. Yeah. And it would be beneficial too to the bow hunter because then again, you're getting that fall equinox time period all to yourself. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll be all for that too, my man. Yeah. So anyway, man, let's hit it, man. What's, uh, what was the Germany hut about? What, uh, what made you want to go tackle that and shit, tell us everything. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned I grew up in North central Wisconsin. My last name is Holtz. It's, it's German. It's German for woods. Um, <laughs> and you know, I grew up with, a lot of German heritage, right? Uh, my ancestors were all either lumberjacks or farmers and, you know, with the last name Woods, it's, it's in our lineage, right? And then hunting is in our history. And what we grew up doing a lot of in Wisconsin is, is drives. Like we did way more, I have shot way more whitetail on drives than I have out of a tree stand. And a lot of people are going to, you know, hate that, not like it. it is what it is. It's what I grew up doing. Um, we have, we have big, big woods. I live in the area of Wisconsin where the wolves have become a huge impact on the animal numbers. We can talk about that in a, another conversation. Probably <laughs> I have some very strong opinions on that. I'll put them aside for now, but, um, yeah, what we would do is we would typically sit opening, you know, our, we have a nine day rifle season in Wisconsin and it's for anybody who hasn't gone to do the Wisconsin rifle season, you should make that a bucket list hunt. 
the culture behind Wisconsin's nine day gun season is unrivaled. It's like unlike anywhere else in the country, you know, Wisconsin is number two or three, I think behind Pennsylvania and Michigan in terms of hunter numbers, they're almost all rifle hunters. You you know, the night before season, all the orange is hung out all over. Every house has got orange hung out. All the families come back and have a, a bunch of cocktails and drinks the night before season, just to get excited. Everybody gets up together, hits the woods and there's a huge cultural aspect behind it, right? We have all these traditions that I just grew up with and took for granted and thought everybody did until I moved out West and saw that there's, it's kind of like this solo, like you maybe hunt with a couple people and you hike a ton and there's really no like staying up late and playing cribbage and card games, right? Like, <laughs> so it, it, like all these things that I did, you know, every year that were just traditions that I, I you know, found out weren't so common in the rest of the hunting world became that much more special as I got older. Right. And, uh, yeah. So like I was saying, we would sit in opening morning and opening day, we'd sit in the tree stand and then we'd normally sit Sunday morning in the tree stand. And then the rest of the week, the rest of the nine day gun deer season would be deer drives. And the reason we have to do that is there's a lot of swamps and a lot of big woods. And so not just the big mature bucks, but 90% of the deer are smart enough that once they hear the absolute gong show that is the start of rifle season right it sounds like an absolute war zone um they they go they bed down they hide in the swamps they hide in the the deep deep dark timber and they don't come out unless they're pushed so sitting in a tree stand would do you no good they only come out at night they get 100 nocturnal during the rest of the gun deer season so if you want any chance of killing a mature buck and if you want any chance of killing really any deer um you know you gotta gotta push them so that's exactly what we did we we deer drive and we had, you know, growing up, our driving party was right around 34 to 36 people. Mm. Um, and you just need that. Yeah. You just need that many people for how big the woods are. I mean, there, the amount of miles I've walked guy on deer drives as a kid is unfathomable. I can't even guess. Like I, <laughs> I would have no even rough ballpark because that's again, part of the tradition. Right. And it's true in the German heritage as well. Um, and I didn't, as I, when I went to Germany, I started learning about all these things. I'm like, ah, that's where that comes from. Right. And that's, what was so unique about the Germany trip is I was learning the why behind what why and doing. how I did what that's I awesome. did my whole life. Right? right. And I don't even necessarily know that my dad knew it or my grandpa knew it, but just, it was by osmosis that all of this kind of trickled down. Um, and one of those things is what I was just talking about. The younger people push, right. In Germany, they call them uh, beaters. And in, in Wisconsin, we call them pushers or drivers. Um, and, and that's always the, the young, the hardy. And you have to earn your way into posting is what we call it in, in Wisconsin, right? Or, you know, standing or shooting. Uh, and, and typically it's the elders that are doing the, the posting and the shooting because they've earned it through all the drives that they've done. Mm-hmm. And they're typically the better shots. They're going to make more effective use of the game that's coming by, right? Um, and there are ways now, I think it's when I was younger, there was no exceptions. It was just, if you were young, you pushed end of story, no, no questions asked. And now it's a little bit more compromising. Whereas like, if you were to do, you know, typically we'd get four to eight drives in in a day, depending on how big that piece of land is. Um, but you know, when I was younger, you'd, you'd walk all eight and now like you might get to stand or, or post as a young kid on one or two of them. Right. So there's a little bit more compromise. Um, but yeah, we'd get in that big group of guys and, you know, we'd have our, our plans and this is before the onyxes and the, the base maps of the world. Right. So you'd roll up to a big stand of timber and some places people only drive public land. We drive everything. We drive the public, private, all of it. 
Um, and, and the bus drives are obviously always on the private. Um, and those drives have been done in my area for generations and generations. So as fancy as you want to try to get with like doing drives, sometimes you like, Oh, the wind is doing this. So we should come at it this way. Right. And we tried to, as, as we've developed as hunters and like all these wind theories and stuff like that, we tried to change that, right. As, as the younger hunting generation, me and my friends would be like, yeah, the wind's doing this this year. And so we're going to push it this way instead of the way we always have done it. And guess what happens? Fail, utter fail. You're <laughs> cutting back. You don't kill anything. You're like, God dang. That's why they've done it like that for generations. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, generation. there's certain, there's certain things with tradition that you cannot mess with. You just can't mess no. with it. Right. And it's been proven year after year after for generations. And then, you know, and we're like, smarter than the people that came yeah. before us. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you're like, ah, I get, I best, you know, I bet great grandpa or grandpa must've tried it this way enough times to learn that it just doesn't work. Right. So <laughs> ignore the wind and just always push this drive this way. Right. Well, anyways, after doing those drives again and again and again, you know exactly where their escape routes are exactly where they're going to kick up and you just get more efficient at it. And, I will say like the guys I grew up driving with as a kid, we were a well-oiled machine. It was not, um, a, there was no safety concern because every single person in the group was, you know, not, I wouldn't say an elite hunter, but like they were very good and could be trusted. And so you kind of got past the point of like ultimate safety and it went more into like effectiveness. Right. And a, a good drive is if we kicked 14 up, all 14 were going down. Like <sighs> a deer was not getting out. And again, that goes back, we are sub, we are subsistence hunters, right? We weren't trophy hunting in, in my area of Wisconsin. There just is not that huge trophy potential. I mean, a four and a half year old, it's going to be a little basket rack eight. That's just the genetics of the, the place. And, you know, we just, it was a, it was a food thing. So, and we get a ton of tags in Wisconsin. So it, it's really a whack them and stack them situation, but that's, that's one big difference. When I went over to Germany that I realized is there's a, a lot of safety precautions in that world. And it's understandable, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially as you're hunting with new people and there's a lot of like neighbor hunts and stuff where you don't necessarily know everybody. And that was a, a big difference, but yeah, man, going over to Germany, I, it was, it was cool. We got to do the, the traditional driven hunt, right? We call them drives. They call it a driven hunt. Um, I guess I'll just kind of start diving into some, some of what the differences were. Um, primarily and this one bothered me from a effectiveness standpoint especially being a, a younger hunter that was always in charge of making the push or making the drive we all of our drivers and pushers shoot and carry weapons right the, the drive gun of choice in wisconsin is a lever action 30 30 or yeah. you know uh, uh, if it yeah oh, dude i've killed more deer with a lever action 30 30 than I'll ever kill with another gun. That stat has been set for me. <laughs> that's been, that's <laughs> been set for the industry. If you ask me, yeah. right. I mean, across, yeah, it, across the demographic, dude, that 30, 30 is, uh, has laid more animals down than, uh, than anything to this point. Great gun. I shot one this year in Wisconsin on a drive with the 30, 30, again, another little buck. Again, I was pushing popped up whack, you know? Um, but yeah, it, uh, so that was one big difference. The drivers always carry guns here in the States over there. They don't, um, one really cool thing that they do that I wish we could do is their, their beaters, they call them have dogs. So they have like these little like terrier type, almost cur, cur to terrier sized dogs. Um, and if you hunt hogs down South, you know what a cur is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you have a, you know, 
uptight family member that has a terrier, you know what that is as well. But <laughs> <laughs> terriers are traditionally used for uh, like squirrel and hunting, squirrel hunting and stuff like that. But we'll not go down there. But yeah, in Wisconsin, we can't use dogs. Um, and until recently, I don't even think you could blood track with them in Wisconsin, which is crazy to me. But they use those dogs and and the beaters uh, kind of almost like hum a tune. It's got like a cadence to it. Uh, in, in Wisconsin, we give hoops and holler. Just you, you know, you keep your line. Depending on the drive, your line is moving, and it it oftentimes has to shape, uh, turn, change form based on the woods, right? So as you're doing a drive, you may turn and do a 45 degree angle with your line and push till a certain point, and then pivot and move a different direction, right? So it's uh, this is all discussed before the drive, and it's very coordinated. Um, for them, it seems more chaotic. It's uh, they they they're not one line. They break into different groups. And the different groups just kind of like have their general directions they're going to go. And then they kind of follow the dogs because the dogs get on a trail and the dog will start pushing something. They just make sure it keeps moving. Um, also, what I learned is, you know, they have smaller, they have the roe deer over there and and the boars. And, and what those will do is after they get kicked up, they'll actually kind of like circle back. Almost like if you've rabbit hunted, right? Grew up rabbit hunting mm-hmm. by beagles. A rabbit will run a little quarter mile circle and come right back to the same bush you kicked it out of. And that's kind of what those roe deer do. So that drive, uh, those beaters with the dogs, just keep the animals running. They kind of like circle back into that general area. So we always did one line of drivers pushing to a couple of posters, tried to push into open areas, whether it was timber cuts or or fields. Um, And what they do is they just have people all over hell in high stands. What we call tree stands, they call high stands. And so if you have, imagine a block of woods, just put like a perfect shotgun blast. There's tree stands all over. There's going to be a shooter in every single one of those high stands. And then the beaters and the dogs just kind of like push stuff everywhere and it circles back in and you just shoot at whatever runs underneath you. Whereas for us, it was very militant, right? It was a perfect line moving in unison, pushing to a select few shooters that were, you know, going to be shooting this stuff as it ran out. And that could be a safety, a safety thing, right? As, as we're considering how it was done. Boo, no, sorry, dude, yeah. my dog. Um, no problem. So they're so yes. so they're definitely hot sits, right? I mean, the the high seat or the high stand. Um, that part of it is, I, I, I'm a that part of it in terms of safety. I was like, man, that's a trip because if I got a guy that's elevated and he sees this deer, if he misses and I'm behind that deer x amount of yards, so shoot out the hot sits, man. It it kind of. Kind of made me a little leery looking at it. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. I, I think, you know, on the ground, being on that ground level, I'd feel a lot better as a beater, bro. <laughs> yeah, they, they, I guess in their theory behind the high seat, and again, they have way more rules. Like our rule in Wisconsin, these were our rules on the deer drive. If it's a deer, you're going to kill it. <laughs> like, Do whatever it takes to kill it, right? And there they have all these safety rules and the, the high seat, the high stand. The easy part there for them, their reason for safety is you can't shoot at something on the horizon. So you have to have ground behind no, the animal. And their theory is if you're high in the air and you're shooting into the ground, every bullet's going to hit the, the ground, ground instead of Makes sense. having the potential to go. Whereas that is a little bit of the sketchy part with how we did it in Wisconsin is the shooters and the drivers are kind of facing each other, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a linear drive right. and both are shooting. So ah. we always... At, as a, as a poster, as a shooter, you always tried to put like a big tree or something in between you and the drive line. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you, you did know, like, as you got closer to them, 
probably not shoot right. Or only shoot out the ends, like out, out the sides, because some of those deer will hold almost like a pheasant push. If you ever push like a, a row of corn for pheasants, those pheasants will run to the end and stop and wait. Cause they know the posters are there. And then those last 10 feet, they just all come up. Deer tend to not really do that. They tend to get out pretty far in front. Um, so it's not as much of a safety concern, but I'll, I'll knock on wood here, actually knock on wood, a little superstitious, but we've never had a safety encounter. And, you know, I started doing deer drives with my family when I was eight years old in Wisconsin. Um, that's when I, sh- you know, shot my first deer and, uh, you know, I've been doing them for, you know, I'm 30 now. So been doing them for a long time, never had even so- something close to a safety issue. Uh, so that's, that's good. It's just, they, they definitely treat the safety a little bit um, more seriously. They do a whole safety speech beforehand and make sure that everything is understood. And again, maybe with how I grew up doing it, um, just the, we always had the same people. So it would have been redundant because it was the same people every year doing the same drives. And it was just understood. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas they, they definitely go through a safety briefing. So, so what are the biggest, the biggest differences you see with, with that, you know, traditional hunt in Germany and, and how we do it. I mean, I know, you know, did, did in Wisconsin, did you guys do the game displays? Uh, and, and I'll probably butcher in the German, but, uh, Strecklegen, uh, I believe is, is close. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. is that, it, it was, are those types of traditions carried on? Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, there's definitely a respect for the animal. Um, and I kind of ta- tactically, I covered the differences, right? Like that's, pretty much covers that. And then, yeah, now getting into the tradition side, like their, their respect for the animal is very ceremonial. Um, it's very, I don't want to say overdone. It's, it's, it's very, it's a part of the hunt. Half the day is for hunting. Half the day is for ceremony. For us, it was the whole, you were going to hunt the whole day, dawn to dusk, right? Use every bit of daylight and then get together and do the the family aspect at the end. Um, you know, my dad always kind of taught me when you approach an animal that, that you've harvested, you know, give it thanks, like put, put your hand on it and, and just kind of say, thank you. You know, whether you're a religious person or not, you're thanking the animal, right. For, for giving itself and providing, providing food and sustenance. Um, we have some very unique traditions too. Like in, in Wisconsin, where I grew up, if you harvest a buck, we'd always take the the male organs, and hang it up in a tree. And, and my dad always kind of explained that to me as like, um, you're kind of keeping them out of the reach of predators and in a way signa- signaling that it's, it's genes will live on right through, through the breeding that it's done and, and so forth. So those are some interesting traditions that we had. We also, whenever we got those animals back, we, we'd hang them up on a, a meat pole, right? Or in a pole shed. And we'd immediately take the tenderloins out, you know, that's underneath the back strap on the inside, the, the best piece of meat, we would take those tenderloins out and we'd cook them in a kind of like a roux. Uh, you take a frying pan with, a butter and mushrooms and onions and that was mushrooms and onions kind of create a, a roux with the the tenderloin chunks and everybody would eat that together right fresh never never cold never frozen like fresh fresh out of the animal right every time like that went without saying it was it's still to this day is we always do it right it's almost like it'd be sacrilege it'd be like bad luck to not do it um and so you know those were kind of our traditions their traditions it, like it starts even before the hunt, right? They've got the horns that signal they're big on signals and horns because I guess back in the old days in Germany, that's how, again, speaking of the neighbor thing, like they would actually signal these driven hunts, like, Hey, we need help driving. And they'd blow a horn and it would signal that this hunt is starting and people would come and then they would go do the drives. 
um, before phones, before communication, right? And so we in America have always had the communication piece. So we never had to deal with the horns. Um, funny enough, we, we have a Christmas horn in my family. Uh, that's the same exact horn. It's a, it's a circular horn with a bell. And I always just thought it was a Christmas horn, but it, it's the exact horn that they use to signal to hunt in Germany. My guess is it was just passed down in my family and we used it as a Christmas horn, but it is like the, the actual German hunting horn. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then, yeah, again, that was one of those things that like, I saw him blow that horn and I was like, that's where that freaking horn came from. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. To make that, you know see I mean? that to me, man, when, you know, when I was watching you go through it, I'm like, that has to be so freaking cool. And I didn't know whether this was, you know, your first trip or you had done it before and what you were experiencing. And I was so intrigued, dude. I'm like, man, that's his heritage right there. Like if this is something that he's just doing, that has to be badass. Yeah. And I've wanted to do it my whole life, guy. I was like, so I, excited I for you, it. bro. <laughs> Man, yeah, I was so stoked. Like, and it, it's just little, little boar and deer. It wasn't a trophy thing. It was for me, I, I wouldn't have cared if I even saw an animal. Mm-hmm. Like granted, we did really well on that, that driven hunt in, in Germany. But it, for me, it was, I, I asked so many questions. I guarantee you, they were so sick of me. Like, <laughs> I was like, what about this? Why this? Why this? Why this? Right. And I was just trying to figure it all out. It was so cool. Um, well, going back to some of the traditions, so the signal to start the hunt, that was cool. Um, you know, when they, when they harvest an animal and then they walk up on it, they also give thanks. Um, they, I didn't ask them about this. I just observed it, right? We walked up on an animal that we had tracked and they can use the dogs to track them. And immediately, you know, the old German guy walks up and puts his hand on it and, you know, he kind of rubs his hand across the fur and you can tell he's doing the exact same thing that my dad taught me to do, right? through osmosis and I'm sure just generational instruction. Mm -hmm. And then he takes it a step further and they take a, it's like a pine bow, right? And then they put it in their mouth. Right. And and that, that is a a signal of the last meal, right? It's a, it's a signal of thanks and the animal's last meal as it, as it goes up into heaven. Right. And I I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, A little bit of another layer. And then from there, you know, you, you load up all the animals uh, one thing that they also do different tactically, we tend to gut our animals in the field and then, you know, drag them out to saves on weight. Um, they take their animals out whole. They take them back to one central location. Everybody works together to get the entrails out, pull the organs out that you're going to eat. Right. Um, which they do, do them all right. Uh, heart, I mean, liver, you name it. Um, they which still, is great. We do are that they still too. using intestines. Or is that they do? The past? Uh, it's 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 mostly that um, like intestinal fat that they'll use to to cook with, okay, um, to render fat from. Uh, but yeah, then once they get them uh, gutted, they they pull them into this is really cool. This is this is my favorite part, and this is what you see a lot of on social media, right? It's the traditional. Um, there's a fire. There's four corner posts, and then there's all the animals laid out. Mm-hmm. And this is where I had most of my questions around because I kn- I know the German culture well enough to know that there's significance for everything. And I just wanted to know what the significance was. And so I asked a billion questions, but, um, essentially those four corner posts that are on fire, they signify, they signal a, a boundary. And so what it tells people is stay outside of that boundary because it's disrespectful to walk over the top of an animal. So, and it's, again, it's one thing that I connected is, whenever I watched my dad or grandpa process an animal, they never walked over it. Never stepped. If they were to switch sides, they'd walk around it it, and they'd keep, they'd keep going. And I never stepped over it. I never, I never connected the dots until I put that together. Right. I was like, okay, 
they, it's still for us it disrespectful to step over it for them they put up the fires around all the animals that are lined up so unless you're dragging an animal into that square you're not supposed to walk into it on the off chance that you might step over one out of again disrespect and i think there might be a little bit of a tie between like the animal going up to heaven and not blocking its way there okay um i can't confirm that but i think that just kind of makes sense to me that's kind of the why behind why not to do it um and then they line up those animals actually in order of not, not significance, but almost value. So the, the boar is kind of valued in the middle. The roe deer is valued low. And then the red stag is valued high. Right. And and the bigger boars are valued higher. So they stack them in order of sex, size and species. So that's why when you see them laid out and they're supposed to space, uh, face a very specific direction, right? It's not like they're just randomly laid there. If, if it's North then they, you know, are supposed to be pointed that exact direction. So whenever you see a picture of those fires, the fires are signaling an area to stay out of where the ceremony takes place. All those animals are laid out in order by again, sex, species, size. And it's, it's very German, right? It's very like, it's very linear. (laughs) Everything has, everything has a purpose. Yeah. I actually pulled up a couple pictures here as you're talking about it to see it. And then sure is, sure is, uh, S there. Yep. Yep. Sure is. <laughs> and then anyways, once, um, once they get that all laid out, everybody is called around, um, and the hunters line up in one spot. And this again, goes back to just the German, the sustenance thing, right? Like we hunted for food. Like I was, I didn't even know that like trophy hunting or passing on an animal was a thing. And so I, I watched a hunting TV show once I was like, I want to say it was like 13 or 14 you know, I was watching this hunting show and I was like, dad, these guys are passing on deer because they're trying to grow them to a mature age. And that's why we don't have big bucks. And then I remember, I'll never forget this, that, that season I was sitting in my tree stand and the little sixer walks by I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pass on him. Right. I watch him walk by. He hops over the fence to my neighbor's land and no sooner than his front feet hit the ground that he just gets pounded. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm done passing on stuff. <laughs> now, obviously like living out West and kind of like, you know, hunting a lot. I, I pass on stuff all the time, but mm-hmm. it's a different than how I grew up, but yeah, they, it's a, it's a sustenance thing. Um, yeah, it, the whole, the whole experience is incredible. So going back to that ceremony, they, they call everybody over the hunters are lined up on one side and the rest of the community is on the other side because it's sustenance or they're, they're there, there for the food, right? right. They're, they're helping, they're helping clean. They're getting part of the animal. Uh, and so they do this big ceremony. Again, they blow the horns to signal the end of the hunt. If you shot an animal, you come over, they put a pine bow in your hat. Um, and then, you know, you kind of go on through the ceremony. It's, it's not very elaborate, um, but it is a lot more than what we do here in the States. And then, um, yeah. And then everybody takes what is theirs. And I'm trying to remember exactly how this works, but over there, the landowner, the landowner gets all the meat because, in Germany, you can sell wild game. So it's very common for them to sell it into a restaurant after it's cleaned out, right? Um, and then the person who harvests the animal gets all the organs that they want uh, to take home to to eat, and they get the trophy, uh, the, the antlers if there are any. And so that's kind of how it's then divvied out. Um, and so the people that are there helping will get some of the organ meat to, to take home, and I'm sure some of the animals are, are donated to people that help out versus just selling them. Mm-hmm. but it's uh it's cool man it 
I'm, I'm trying to even remember all the dots I connected and some of them just came out through natural conversation, but it really did blow my mind. Like, wow, that's, that's why we do that. Like, damn. <laughs> so, okay. So I got, I got questions. <laughs> <laughs> Good fire. So you kind of talked about the traditional versus, you know, what, what we're doing here, or what you've done in Wisconsin. What have we lost from tradition that you feel like should be included in that, you know, air quote, traditional hunt as much as it isn't anymore, but something that you, that you experienced in Germany that you were like, man, we should bring this back. We should bring this back to that hunt. Yeah. And why? I think, yeah, I mean, the cool thing is, although we don't have as strict a traditions, hunting will always be traditional, right. right? Hunting is how humans have fed themselves for millennium. And, and that will never change. There's always that, you know, tapping into your natural instinct that no other activity will, will let you do. And that's why so many of us love it. Right. Um, so that, that will never go away. As far as like the formalization of, of the tradition, I did really like how, it wasn't just a hunt hard dawn to dusk. It was a, it was a hunt hard for the first half of the day and then enjoy each other's company as a big group community. Like we doing drives, right? Everybody who harvested a deer took their deer and then went to their own homes. It wasn't like everybody comes back to one central location. And I think that would have been really cool to do. And I think that we should do more of that, you know, hunt hard for sure. But take some time to just appreciate the people around you and enjoy the community. Uh, I think, I think that's one thing that even if we don't copy exactly what they do, come up with our own traditions and ceremonies and, and spend that time. Um, cause in America, you know, everything is so fast paced, run here, run there, instant gratification. And then everybody bails. Right. And I, I would, I would like to see more of that come back. That's probably the number one thing. You, you brought up superstitions two times. What? Let's hear it. Because it's funny because some people won't even, some people glass over that stuff, right? And, and there's, no, there's no thought about it, right? Um, when a guy does it two or three times, I'm like, yeah, this, this dude is superstitious when it comes to stuff. But <laughs> that superstition doesn't necessarily cross over into other facets facets of life typically it's with things that are traditional or that have been ingrained of in us from a young age so let's hear it man (laughs) totally off base but that's why i was struggling i was like you know we're gonna talk about it's a good it's a good pickup (laughs) on your on your part you know it's good that you're listening right and I don't consider myself a superstitious person. Until like, you get I guess into I'll the woods. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's guy, guy, there's just certain things you don't do. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the easiest, that's just the easiest way, you know, and the funny thing about superstition is sometimes it's connected to fact. And it may have been superstitious for my family members to approach an animal on the uh, upwind side that may have been a superstition Mm -hmm. and it's connected to fact, which is it would not work. (laughs) (laughs) They may have not connected the fact that like approaching upwind, the animal smells you and runs away, but the animal runs away every time you approach from upwind. So don't do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
And so it's sometimes it's hard to draw a line between what's superstition and what's tactic. Right. Right. And in hunting, I do have superstitions. Like I will never in my life ever kill a male anything and not hang its male organs in a tree. I will, if I'm out West, I'm in a sage flat. I will walk a quarter mile out of my way to find a sage bush to put it on because it's just what you do. Mm-hmm. Like you no except no exceptions. Like that's just, I don't even know if it's superstition. It's law. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it is, it's, right. it's not, it's, it's just, it's, it's just how it is. Mm-hmm. This I, is I what don't you have do. a word. Yeah. There's not even, yeah, it's just, it's just how it, how it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, superstition is an, an interesting thing in the rest of life. I don't really have any superstitions, but yeah, in hunting, there's definitely things that you just do and maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe there's not like the, the, that last one I just mentioned is a bit more ethereal. Like there's, there surely is no tactic connected to that. Um, but who knows? I mean, who knows? (laughs) I mean, you know, and to go back to that ancestral root spiritually to understand what they were thinking when they did that. Right. And I, I mean, I've seen things like, you know, the head comes off and you, and you put the head in the tree facing, you know, a direction where it has beautiful scenery. So that's, you know, the last place it's going to see, um, what, I mean, I've seen all kind of stuff, dude. Um, and that's, that's right in line with the the last meal. Right? right. And that's right in line with the, the male organs in the tree type of thing. It's all, it has all the, everything has to do with respect. Everything has to do with it kind of moving on. Right. Right. And, it's, and that's thanking it for, yeah. and, and that's not just a German thing. I mean, this is, across the globe in, in many, many cultures where hunting, you know, has, has been, I, I say that, right. But there's some cultures before people crucify me, well, everybody hunted. Um, there's some cultures that, that took it another level, right. It was, it was a way of life. It was part of it. There wasn't, there wasn't just two or three dudes going out and killing uh, animals for sustenance. It was a tradition, a, a community tradition, excuse me, um, that people partake in. So. And it was a, a, it was a need, right? It was a need. Like that's a, that's a, that's where tradition I think stems from is when it's a need and it's reoccurring, Mm -hmm. there become certain things to, and a lot of that is like superstitious, right? Like if, if you are consistently doing something, and harvest is good and everybody is eating, you're going to continue to do that. And in hard times where you are not finding food, you're going to seek reason for why you are not eating. And it could be a matter of life and death. And so if I think that's how some of those traditions are kind of formed, like maybe somebody stopped putting the pine bow in the animal's mouth. And then all of a sudden the, the animal, you know, there were probably, it was probably a rough winter or predation was up and animal numbers went down, but they associated it with that you know, change in, in, in tradition and they'll never do it again because they, they need to eat. Right. And I think that's where we, we will never be able to really fully look back and say why or how everything got started. But I think that's where a lot of these traditions come from, right. Is it was a need to harvest game and people were willing to do everything, even spiritually that they could to ensure steady harvest and steady food that they can keep going on it. What? How do I phrase this? That that sense of community. If if we had to do that now, I 
and, and have that level of community and that level of coming together for one ultimate goal. And I'm not just talking the hunting demographic. I think most people are foobar, right? Um, and that, that, I don't ever see it. It's unfortunate as I think about it, right? Because, because those things have such symbolism and they have such generosity and so much charity to it, at least from what I know of it. Right. Um, yep. What do you think? How, how do we, how do we get people to understand that part of what we do? We're removed from it. Yep. Right. But, but having an experience like that, you think you can, shape some minds a little bit dude great great question and you know what we had something happen recently that kind of helped pull us all back together i think um but you know if, if something like that were to happen fully the world would be a better place mm -hmm. like i'll start there that's why I was right asking. if there if we if we could go back to the point where it was a need right the world would be a better place and the event that i was talking about is covid right so do you remember back in the COVID days where all the meat disappeared off the shelves in the, in the cities, yeah, no. people were panicking. They couldn't find toilet paper. The meat was gone. People were panicking. They didn't know what to do. Guess whose doors got knocked on? Not mine. It's on the state the heck away. Me, a lot of my hunting buddies, they had, they had neighbors coming in. Hey, there's no meat on the stores. I, I just have a kid. I want to make sure that they have their proteins. You have any to spare? And it's like, yeah, like absolutely. You know, here, take it, take a pack of back straps or take a, you know, burger or whatever, take it. Like I'm, we're here for you. We're your neighbor. Be nice. Right. And I think that for the hunting, no, I don't want to say hunting industry for hunting, for hunting as a whole, as a tradition, as a way of life, as a thing that we have a right to do. COVID made a huge step forward for us. We saw that in the terms of license sales, hunting license sales were up 1 million in after the year of COVID. Why? People discovered they had a need that they didn't know they had before, before they were reliant on getting their food from grocery stores. Now, COVID scared the crap out of them. They realized, wow, we probably need to know how to get our own food. We need to have a backup, right? We can't just rely on our neighbor being nice because if stuff really does hit the fan, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's why people, all people, people will always hunt. But I do think that that COVID and that little meat scare we had went a long way into showing people that there's a reason why we, it's a need being able to hunt, harvest your own food and provide for yourself is a need. It's not just this fun thing that you do for the heck of it. Right. Um, and, and I think it was, it was really important. So how do you get that to hold though? Because, because typically with, with most everything we see today is complacency sets in almost immediately. Right. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's fast and people will, Look at something as a necessity until the ease or the work of actually going out and killing your own food or growing your own food becomes something that is taking time away from it being easy. They stop yeah. doing it. Right. So so there's a challenge there. So how do we get that to hold? How do we present it? How do we display it? And how do we show the importance of these things? Say, say we had two hundred and fifty thousand more hunters during that time period. I have no idea what the percentage is that's going to stay or go, but say it was 
70-30, 30 are still going for whatever reason, be it they found that primal thing in themselves and they absolutely love it. They figured it out and they're able to go out and kill an animal because you know as well as I do, it takes people, some people years to figure out how to do that, right? So how do we get that to hold? How do we how do we show the importance and say, hey, this is where you were. You came and asked for two, you know, two pounds of elk or venison ground. What are you doing now? How come you're still not out there? Yeah. And man, what you're talking about right now is opportunity costs, right? Like, and that's a natural human endeavor. There's always a better alternative or something else that could be going on or something else that you could be doing. And yeah, hunting is not easy, man. It's not just walk out, whack something that puts itself in freezer bags in your freezer and you're, you know, walking away. It's a, it's a challenge. And you just have to hope that the people that tried it fell in love with that challenge because that's the only way they're going to stick with it. The weak and the people who always want the the easiest opportunity cost are never going to be hunters. They won't. That's not, it's not what it is. And that's, it just is what it is. Like hunters and gatherers, <laughs> there's always going to be both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And dude, that is part of the problem. Why hunting is kind of like has been fading is we have, all these luxuries in our lives. Like, so it's so easy. You get up in the morning, your house is already hot. You click a button, the TV's on, you sit on your ass. Food shows up at your doorstep and you click a button on an app and you eat it. Isn't it something? Like who doesn't want it? Yeah. Who doesn't want to do that? You know what I mean? And a lot of people just kind of fall into that. Like humans are habitual. You just fall into that habit of just doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden something like happen, uh, COVID happens and it throws your routine for a little mm. loop. And all of a sudden the, <laughs> you can't hit the button and get the food and you kind of get a little scared. You know, the only thing that's going to make hunting stick guy, like stick stick is a constant reminder of that scare. Like, but they, but the first thing that people went after wasn't meat. The first thing they <laughs> went after paper. was toilet paper. <laughs> you know what I mean? So goofy. If Wasn't you don't have the meat to eat, you probably don't need the toilet paper. Let's just get that clear. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're doing that Wasn't mess that backwards. <laughs> what? There was a bunch of other stuff too that was just disappearing that made no sense. Do you remember? I can't remember all the top of my head. Toilet paper was one. Toilet paper was but it one. Was like, it was, Lysol, I, I kind of got it. <laughs> Bleach, I yep, got it. Um, mm-hmm. I can't really remember. It was really the toilet paper. I think paper plates was a big thing. It was yeah. just, it was like the oddest yeah. in the world that yeah. was disappearing. You're like, you're like, I would rather starve to death and not be able to wipe my ass. It's just crazy, <laughs> right? Like what, what are you doing? The one thing that tickled me though, and, and, you know, and I don't really have an opinion of, of, you know, vegans or vegetarians, but it was always funny to me when you look at, you know, they show pictures in grocery stores and whatnot and meat is gone. I mean, it's just ransacked and that little, you know, uh, the, I don't know, what are they all meat alternatives, the vegetable meats. I don't even like calling them meat. Mm-hmm. That stuff was like fully stocked. You know what I mean? It was just like, well, yeah. what's going well, nobody on? Nobody wants that. Not even, not even the vegans <laughs> or vegetarians. <laughs> That's uh, oh man, what a crazy, what a, and it's still crazy. That's the thing. There's still, I, I don't understand why they're still talking about this stuff. I digress. So, uh, yeah, I I just think it's cool, man, to to go and experience, um, you know, a heritage or a traditional hunt like that and get to your roots and get to make the connections of, of, oh, wow, this is we did. And then to see, oh, this is where that came from. This is why. Dude, that's just I was telling you, I was rooting for you, dude. I was like, this is freaking (laughs) awesome. 
Um, yeah, man. And I did, I tried to cover it on, on, you know, my Instagram as good as I could. Um, and I, you know, a couple of long winded posts, but people were interested in the details, you know? Mm-hmm. So I tried to, I tried to connect it as, as I was connecting the dots in my head. I tried to just share all that because, you know, you, especially the people that are really into hunting, you know, like yourself, a couple of my buddies that are just hunting absolute fiends. They were the people that were really into it. Right. They were like, all right, yeah. that's cool. No, like, that's cool <laughs> stuff, man. I mean, you look at, yeah. like I say, you look at stuff around the globe and it's just like, wow, okay. That, that's some cool crap there. Um, mm-hmm. so man, uh, our, you know, one of our first conversations, man, was the, was the handgun thing. So, you know, you, you talked about, you know, making it more challenging, right. Up in, up in the, uh, the ante, if you will, um, and, and decreasing your odds. Um, cause that's really what, <laughs> what it does, right. When you, when you decide to take on a new weapon, um, so talk about that a little bit, man. I want to hear about the weapon and optics and, you know, you talked about public yeah. versus private, what, uh, caliber yeah. you using, et cetera. Yeah, man. Um, this will be a, a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> here we go. Um, so I, I'll start with like why I got into handgun hunting and, you know, I mentioned I, I grew up rifle hunting, bow hunting. I'd kind of done a little bit of everything. Um, the one thing I really didn't do a lot of was muzzleloader hunting until, you know, I moved out West and there was some good opportunity hunts for that. Um, but really that's why I got into handgun hunting is it was the one weapon I had left, right. To really learn and, and master. And I've got this saying about people that I really respect that I consider really good hunters. And, and there's a lot of them in my, in my life that I've learned from, you know, my grandpa, um, just different, even people I've met through the industry and, and people I've hunted with. And I've got this saying that, you know, if, if I, my buddy Kevin, right. I, I could say, man, you could drop that guy off on the mountain with a spoon and he'd kill anything. He'd kill whatever he wanted to give him a spoon. That thing's dead. Doesn't stand a chance. Right. And that like, it's a random little saying I kind of came up with, but that's kind of what, what I aspire to. Right. I, I, no matter what weapon there is, no matter what season it is, it doesn't matter if it's early season, late season, it doesn't matter what animal, if it's small game, all the way to the biggest big game, I want to be proficient with that weapon in that season for that animal. I just want to be the most diverse hunter that I possibly can be. Right. And that's, that's kind of where it all started from. You know, I, I had pretty well mastered the the rifle and the, the bow hunting as a kid and then pretty well mastered the, the muzzleloader hunting and the handgun is just what, what was next. And so I really dove into it, man. And it was a, it was a struggle. <laughs> I had nobody to learn from that. That was the, the starting point. In archery, you have all these mentors. You can go to an archery pro shop and get some tips, and you can listen to archery podcasts. Uh, newsflash, there's nothing for handguns. <laughs> <laughs> Zero, nothing. And so I was I was learning it on my own, and uh, that was also part of the fun, right? It was the it's, – it's the journey, and, and it was a hell of a journey. And the first three years, I hunted really unsuccessfully with the handgun. I had a couple of chances, had a, a lot of misses, and just – there's a lot of disciplines that carry over, right? Um, and, and slowly I started to connect the dots from these other disciplines to get better at it. And, you know, some of those disciplines are like trigger control, right? The trigger pull on a pistol is 10 times more important than on a rifle. So the more you practice dry firing and trigger control, the better, right? Get, got a 22 and just started practicing with that thing and just getting really good at trigger pull and just getting accurate. And then, you know, also did a, a in my previous life working at Burris optics, right? Like did a lot of three gun shooting and, and long range shooting and, you know, you learn a lot about through competition shooting, you learn a lot about building position, right? Bone on bone contact and how to build a good position. It is essential 
with a pistol to be able to build a good position and have bone-on-bone contact. Like more important than anything because your barrel is this freaking long. So any little minute of angle you're off, the bullet is off 10 times that much down range, right? And so just, again, pulling from all these other disciplines, I, I pulled stuff from archery, I pulled stuff from muzzle, or I pulled stuff from kind of all over just to kind of get better at it. And yeah, I just kind of learned. And I, I also, I started when it comes to pistols, there's a lot of different kinds, the very high tech pistol, like the chassis chassis pistols are essentially rifles, right? They're just short rifles, Mm -hmm. still a lot harder than a rifle, not as hard as a bow, but I wanted to start right. I wanted to learn the hard way, right? I'm a miserable person. I love to be miserable. I, I, I don't know why same thing in Western hunting. It's my favorite thing about it. I love go disappear with myself and, a couple of freeze dried meals, a bag of rice and a one man tent in the back country for right. nine days. Strong. I want it to rain. I want it to snow. I want to be cold. I want it. I want it nasty. I want to have a hellacious pack out. Why? I don't know. Can't explain it. It's just part of, again, maybe tapping into like that, that instinct and that tradition that, that hunting brings to say you um, did. We're I mean, so that's, com- that's, you know, Dude, not even to say I did just to feel it, man. Right. to, to feel it in the moment. Like yeah. you were so fucking comfortable pardon my French, you'll have to bleep that out, but no, we're so comfortable, man. We, <laughs> we wake, we wake up in the heat. We we're, we're just comfortable all the time. And it just like, it's good to feel how humans should feel. And it makes your regular life. You know, it's that much better because when you get miserable on a hunt, you come back to regular life and you're like, wow, I have it really good. <laughs> well, does it? So, so I talk about this quite often. And for me, it's an opportunity for me to take you know, air quote, my woes, my baggage, the, the crap that I build up, take it up on the mountain with me. And, and that mountain and being the, the leveler doesn't give a, about how sorry I feel for myself. And that's one of the biggest things I look forward to is just like, if I got crap, it's coming with me and it's staying there. It's going to stay on the mountain and I'm going to beat it out of myself come hell or high water or mother nature is going to help me do it. And that, and hearing yep. you say that, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that's where it is. Yeah. And, and so like how I got on that tangent is right. Talking about like making it hard on yourself. I was like, if I'm going to learn how to piss on, I'm going to do it right. And so I first started hunting with a muzzleloader pistol, um, a 50 caliber muzzleloader pistol, open sights, um, and missed a couple deer with that thing at like 50 yards. Right. Had a rest, thought I knew trigger control, like, still don't know what happened to this day. I film all my hunts too for my YouTube channel and on camera, clean miss, no, I miss. Still don't know how, don't know why. <laughs> Just like <laughs> dumb. Um, anyways, from there I was like, all right, um, I don't want to wound anything. Like I'm going to get a, a better pistol. So I picked up a Ruger Super Blackhawk, uh, eight and a half inch barrel, right? Um, started open sights, started killing some stuff, just getting proficient with the weapon, right? And actually that weapon right there, although it was good, one thing that I learned a lot about guy is the efficiency of pistol ammo. And I'm not going to like hype or put down brands against other brands in this podcast. Um, what I will tell you is not all pistol ammo is created equal, not even close. Most rifle ammo will do the job. 90% of pistol ammo will not do the job. And I shot a lot of does in Wisconsin to test that like perfect, you know, bullet on actual animal tests. Right. And I'm not going to put any brands down, but I will tell you the federal premium handgun ammo slaps like that. That will, you will not go wrong. That thing will put them down. Um, so that's the one that I found will always work. Even 
at distance. A lot of ammo will work inside 50 yards, but as you start to lose that kinetic energy because of the shorter barrel and the less pressure, the bullet just won't open past 100 yards, which is a problem. Um, so, you know, Ruger Super Blackhawk, that one was in 44 mag, shot a few open sights, and then I got a pistol on it, uh, or a, a scope on it, rather. Um, and I did, a, I did the whole mounting and stuff myself. I consider myself a little amateur gunsmith, you know, so I love working on it, tinkering with stuff. And um, put a two to seven power Burris handgun scope on it with the extended eye relief. It'll work great. That that scope really let me kind of stretch my distance a little more. It's where I really started to learn about the uh, bullet effectiveness, right? Um, and that's great. Like I was having a good time with that gun. Did a, a couple Western hunts and a lot of hunts back in the Midwest with it, and was getting very proficient and, and good with it. Um, and then I was just realizing I was missing a ton of opportunities. Uh, when it came to Western hunting, because with that, uh, with that Ruger super Blackhawk, my maximum distance, I was really comfortable at 50 yards on sticks with a scope, like heart pounding felt good at 50 yards, 75 yards. I was 90%, hundred yards. I was kind of starting to get into the question zone. Right. And I was like, dang, if I'm going to Western hunt on public land, when it's not the rut and there's rifle hunters running everywhere, I need to get something that goes a little bit further. And so in this last year, I built up a, it's a Remington XP chassis pistol. Um, and it's calibered in seven MM08. And, you know, it's got a little bit longer barrel and I am a friggin' sniper with that thing now. And I practice with it so much, like it would make you sick. I practice on sticks. I practice prone, which PS, there's no point. If you're going to go down this pistol rabbit hole, don't even practice prone. There's no point at all. There's zero point. You will never be able to, in a hunting situation, you will never be able to take a shot prone. Nope, never, because there's always grass in the way. There's always, just won't happen. So get really good off of shooting, not sticks. You got to get a good tripod, right? And you get good at clamping that thing into the tripod, getting that tripod base spread out wide, have the odd leg facing at you so you can shorten it for height. And you just learn, again, all these position building precision skills that you learn in competition shooting carried over into pistol shooting. So I think my learning curve was a little faster, but that uh, 7 mm 8 pistol, um, was able to take an antelope with it this year, a mule deer with it this year, and was able to really stretch that distance. Uh, you know, if I'm calm, no problem 200 yards. Like I'm shooting a fist size group all day off of sticks at, at 200 yards in that pistol. Prone, I can stretch it out to 400. I just don't like to do it. Um, and then with those bullets, I'm shooting a, the Hornady SSTs out of those. Mm-hmm. They've been really good for me. Haven't had any problems with them at all. Um, the ELDXs I'm sure would also do great. I just shoot the SSTs cause they're a little lighter. So I get a little more speed out of that pistol, Especially which again is important. Shorter because, barrel. Yep. Yeah. That shorter barrel, you lose the pressure, you lose the speed. And so on that one, I'm running a, a Burris handgun scope as well. It's a three to nine power. The nice thing about that is you do the, um, the ballistics on their website. So you, you shoot through a chronograph, you get your muzzle velocity, you pair that up with your sight height over bore and your, um, your altitude, your temperature, and it gives you your exact holdovers for your reticle. So based on, it's a second focal plane scope. So based on what power I'm at, each one of those ticks represents a different line. So I've got a whole cheat code, right? If the deer is standing at 420 yards, you dial the six power and hold second line down. Right. <laughs> what, uh, Money. what and reticles on that? It's just the basic uh, ballistic plex. So okay. crosshairs, three lines underneath, Okay. no windage holds. Um, you shouldn't shoot in the wind with a pistol just because of friggin' you're on sticks and it's blowing everywhere. Like that's what another tough thing, especially not a crosswind. It's one thing if it's a straight wind at you or away, but those side winds are real tough with a pistol. Um, 
and so, yeah, man, over, over this pistol hunting journey over the last five years, I've been able to take a pile of white tails and one decent white tail buck. I got, you know, this last year when I did that, that slam that I was able to do in that single season. And then, um, you know, I've got an, an antelope with it this year, a mule deer with it this year. Um, all, all public land animals, which is kind of, you know, biomo, which cooler. Is what, and, yeah, it makes it tough, man. And, uh, see, it's been, it's been, it's been a good journey and I'm still learning, you know, it's, it's like anything you, you can think you you've mastered archery and then you yeah. make a mistake and you're like, yeah, I got a long way to go. <laughs> so so, so you I'm bring not going to say I've mastered it, but I got better. <laughs> you bring up archery in that. And, and so are there, sounds odd to say it, but you know, the, the hardline traditional handgun hunters. And it's like, Hey man, no, nah, seven MM 08, you need to be 44 mag 40, you know, 41 rem mag 357, 454, 45 Colt. Are those, those, you know, do you find those guys that are out there? And, and, and I almost liken it. And when you said archery, it, it made me think about it. Cause I mean, you're talking trad and compound, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, exactly. That's exactly it. And I, I compare it all the time. Cause I have, I've done by far the most archery hunting and, and what I've pulled from archery hunting and the hand gunning is just the skill of the hunt, right? How to work the wind, when to move, learning animal behavior and the ecology of it. And then, you know, just the basic stalking skills, right? Like all that carried over, of course, and it carries over from all kinds of hunting. But as you know, as an archery hunter, that's really where you hone those skills, mm-hmm. right? Those high country velvet archery mule deer hunts where you're just Blown getting in tight, stalk. man. And, trying not to right um yeah you know and with with the the trad hunters or mega tradders and the and the archer the archery guys don't like the rifle hunters and everybody hates everybody right but i have not found any hate in the pistol world because i don't know anybody that pistol hunts i have never ran into anybody that pistol hunts i've never once been on public land ever and seen anybody with a pistol in fact every time somebody sees me on public land they ask me where my gun is because it's in my pack and they, they're like, there's no barrel sticking out. There's no sling. They're like, what the fuck are you doing out here? <laughs> what are you taking pictures? Like, why are you in camo? You know? And, um, so I've never gotten any hate for going to the seven MMO eight. Again, I just did it because it was part of the progression and more than anything, I wanted to build that gun. Like I mentioned the gunsmithing thing, it's something I like to do in the off season. And so I built that thing from scratch, man. I mean, I, I did the trigger custom. I, did everything. I, I hydro dipped the stock. I custom fit the stock to fit my hand. I glass bedded it. I, I mean, you name it. I, I went through the entire thing. Um, and I just got it used off gun broker for super cheap and now it's just a tack driver. So, um, yeah, I, I, w- I will not deny the, the revolver style short barrel piss hunting way harder right. than, than the long range pistol. It's not even in the same category. It's a lot like trad hunting versus compound hunting. Right. Um, I mean, just the limit, guys just there, the but. limitation on what the round itself is is capable yep. of but then you right. dude if you watch some of these these old timers that have been handgun hunting for years and they're you know like blowing minds with a 454 or a 357 and dude you you know you you get your 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 nads up and you go in the safe and you grab that 357 out and you go to the range and you're like how in the actual hell is this guy doing this and and some yeah, of our iron sights dude yeah. And they bark, man. They, they eat like that. I mean, even that seven MMO eight pistol, it'll rip your freaking hand off. Yeah. Same as the, same as the 44 mag, man, that little Ruger's kick just as bad as the seven MMO eight. It's lighter. Um, yeah, it's, a. Uh, it was, it's good. It's been a good journey. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I mentioned in the beginning of the call and I'm going to explain myself a little bit here to, 
with people where I said, you know, sometimes I think pistol hunting is harder than archery hunting. And I stand by that. And I'll, let me explain myself a little okay. bit. And I think after I make a couple of these points, you might even agree with me, but I am not comparing archery hunting to hunting with a chassis handgun. It's not, that's, that's not the same. Um, what I am doing is I am saying that hunting with that revolver, even with the scope, hunting with that revolver 44 mag, I think it's harder, absolutely harder than a bow compound bow. Sorry. I go like yeah. in terms of difficulty, trad bow. Cause that's what I started doing. I started hunting with a long bow. Right. Um, so I go trad bow, pistol, compound bow, everything else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and here's why when you're bow hunting, you can be walking, standing up. Let's say something jumps up or let's say there's a mule deer in its bed and you need to stand to get the right angle on it. You can pull up and you can shoot from a standing position, not happening with a handgun at, at any distance not happening. You'll miss. It's going to be bad news bears. So the ability to just stand up and shoot with a bow is, is huge. Um, you know, that back pressure that you have when you're standing and allows you to be steady is huge. That back pressure comes in handy in the wind. When you're holding a handgun out in front of you, the wind's blowing it everywhere unless you're on, on, a, on a pod, right? On a tripod. Um, and then getting into the seasons thing, that's probably the biggest difference. When you're bow hunting, there's only other bow hunters out there. You're in camo. You don't have to worry about getting within 50 yards in blaze orange. And most of the archery seasons are during the prime seasons. Everything's rutting, running around, right? During the rifle seasons, typically late season hunts. There's no, you know, no animal out of its mind, elk rolled back in its eyes and its head screaming, coming into a, a, a you know, bugle call or a, a cow mew. They're, they're, you know, it's with rifle hunting, they've been hunted already all year long. All the archery people, all the muzzleloader people, all the early season people, they chased them all over the mountain. They've seen it. They've heard it. They've smelt it. You were hunting the highest alert animal in blaze orange against other rifle hunters. And you got a freaking pistol in your hand that you have to get within 50 yards on. So I rest my case. Yeah, I don't, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't argue them. Um, have you, have you found any challenge in minimum barrel lengths because there's there's quite a few states that stipulate the rifle mm -hmm. season having minimum barrel length so how does that translate into handgun because typically it's lesser yeah, you, right i mean yep yep yeah you just gotta you gotta you know read the regs and more than anything i just call a warden every time like get <laughs> have that conversation like that's the easiest way to do it that's what those people are there for that's what they're you know give them a call make sure it's okay um, so other rifle rounds, six, five Creed, seven mil oh eight, three oh eight. Yeah. You know, and seven mm oh eight and six, five Creed, there's going to be some rifle nerds in here are going to kill me for saying this, but it's basically the same round. I mean, this six, five Creed more is the new generation of the seven mm oh eight, both extremely ballistically efficient, very flat, carries their energy pretty well down range. Um, as far as pistol rounds, you know, what people are really into guy in that chassis pistol world and in the long range pistol and in the long range hunting pistol world is the custom, the custom calibers. They're all hand loading. Mm -hmm. They're doing crazy variations. They're taking, you know, six BRs and six PRCs and they're, they're making crazy variations off that. And so that's a rabbit hole that I have not even got down yet. <laughs> At first, first I wanted to learn how to hunt with a, with the three handguns I have, which is the muzzle loader pistol, the the 44 mag and the seven MM 08. And I was like, you know what, maybe during the off season I can get into the crazy reloading, but I'm just trying to refine my hunting skills. For I, man, I think that would be a, that seems like a, a, a tough go dude. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to work up a really good round 
for a rifle, for your specific rifle, your specific build, right? And your hunt area, all your, all your, uh, environmentals and everything, but then to try and do that with a pistol. I don't know. For me, it just seems like there's a lot, that's a bigger endeavor. And I'm going to just make a point. So six, five Creedmoor, seven mil or seven, uh, MMO eight, six, five Creedmoor drinks lattes where, the seven MO eight is probably, you know, coffee and a little bit of sugar. <laughs> yeah. Well, out of, out of a pistol, it's, it's black coffee. <laughs> um, that's right. The one difference, the one difference that's actually really important. If you guys are looking to get into this, you know, type of handgun hunting, it's important to know. And I only learned this because again, I was working at Burris optics at the time and we have a bunch of ballistic geniuses that work there. And when I was going about, you know, what caliber do I build this pistol in? Originally I was going to do it in six, five. And the reason I decided not to is the seven MMO eight is much more effective ballistically out of a pistol. That six five Creedmoor needs that pressure; it needs that barrel length to build its speed. Whereas the seven MMO eight will do it much better in that shorter shorter barrel. Mm. So, it and I can't tell you the, the physics or explain why, like uh, my buddy Sky could, but he, uh, you know, he he ran me through it one day, and I was like, I trust you. <laughs> I'm going to build it in seven MMO eight. Right. That's the way we're going to go. Yeah. You told me the coefficients were better there. That's the way I'm going, buddy. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. It always makes it, and, and you know, working up around, I mean, if it's something like, you know, 30 odd six, seven mil rem mag, where you have historical data and guys are punching this stuff out thousands of rounds on a daily across every platform, damn near you have history. I mean, you could hit up anybody on a rifle round, but a man, a freaking handgun load. That's uh, that's even just else, I read I read a couple of books on you know how to handgun hunt and that's how you know you're taking on something pretty niche is when you can't just Google it but you got to go hit the text right? right right you got to go hit the books and uh, handguns in wild places is is one that I read a friend through the industry sent it to me he's actually the author um, and so that was helpful but. Other than that, man, trial and error, like anything, mm-hmm. like just get out there, learn from your mistakes, well, try pro- to get better at the it. The problem with and trial practice. and error in, it now is powder is yeah. primer is a problem, right? I mean, dude, I've been trying to reload seven mil. I, I went back to factory uh, rounds out of my uh, seven rim because I can't get powder. Dude, I haven't been able to get powder for shit. Seems like three years now, maybe four, you know, it's just yeah, crazy. I never went down the reloading rabbit hole, man. I, maybe someday I will, but I've always just run factory ammo for that reason. I know I'm going to, you know, through somebody be able to get my hands on it. And well, so. the problem was, is factory ammo wasn't around. You you could barely right. get that powder. You couldn't get primers. You couldn't get, I mean, I got enough cases to reload for four guys for a couple yeah, three same. years of hunting dude and then you know all the Buck, targets shooting you want <laughs> yeah but you couldn't yeah. find anything right and it was just this you know almost acts of desperation one of my rifles i haven't even pulled it out because it's it is my reload gun like i found the load for it that's my reload gun there's no way it's coming out unless it has a reload i haven't been able to make rounds for and it's a 30 out six one of my favorite and it's actually the weapon that i thought about it's the thompson center the uh the pro encore i want to handgun yep. that sob now right and it's the perfect the perfect gun for yep. it right and that'll be a good a good way to get into pistol and handgun hunting is starting on something a little bit more efficient and then maybe getting challenge more challenging 
which is the reverse of what I did. Mm, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to decrease any further yeah. my success rate. <laughs> here's a here's a here's a pro tip, guy. If you're gonna get into uh, handgun hunting, for everybody listening, do not try a muzzleloader pistol. Those things are worthless weapons. <laughs> is it, so is that is, is it smoothbore or is it rifled? How? It's rifled. It's rifled. So it's, uh, the one I have is the CVA Optima V2. Okay. Uh, it's a little little short stainless steel barrel pistol, open sights. And I actually tried um, I tried getting an elk in Colorado during the muzzleloader season with uh, with it. And during the nine-day season, I called in like 40 bulls in, in seven days. I had so many close calls. This hunt is up on my YouTube channel and just never got it done. And on the last day, I broke out that just muzzleloader and I shot a pretty nice five-by-five. Five. Um, but it's it, it just it's so hard. And when you do get a shot off, it's just my rule with the muzzleloader pistol, and this is going to sound crazy, they have to be within 30 yards. I am not comfortable with the muzzleloader pistol unless it's inside 30. And the reason for that is your trigger pull with the pistol is so important. And no matter how good the muzzleloader is, there's that little bit of delay in between when the trigger falls, the hammer drops, the powder ignites, and the bullet goes. And in that little split second, it's just hard. What are you talking on that thing? Eight inch barrel? Nine inch barrel? Yeah, I think it's eight and a half or nine. And it's, uh, you know, you're shooting. I was running 100 grains of powder with the 270 grain federal um, bore lock in it. Because um, I have to be Colorado compliant, of course. Right? I have to use, I've got to use, I've got to use the loose powder. I've got to use the iron sights. I've got to use the, the bore lock. And I was doing all that. And yeah, on a handgun. And you talk about bark. You will never oh in your God, life dude. shoot something that recoils like that. I promise sighting it in, you can shoot three to four times and all the skin on your palm is just gone. <laughs> talk, talk about how exasperated that is. So people understand it, right? I mean, you're going on, you know, from a 24, 26 inch barrel and you're cutting that down drastically so any and you you talk you you touched on it early on um with you know building your position bone on bone but but talk about how exasperated that is when you're taking over 70 percent of that barrel away exactly it's a simple calculation of moa right so if your if your barrel is half the distance it's going to be twice the effect if it's quarter the distance it's going to be four times the effect and in this case, it's a lot less than quarter. It's, it's, it's a 10th. The barrel is a 10th the size. And so, uh, one little movement is, you know, 100 times impact downrange. And so it, you, it, like it's, <laughs> I'm at a loss of words. It's, it's hard yeah. to describe like how hard it is to get good at shooting a pistol at any sort of distance. Open sight muzzle loader is a challenge anyway. And I watched folks in that muzzle loader season, take shots from 70 yards. I've seen, I saw four or five shots on a mule deer doe at about 90 yards and never saw that doe fall. Right. And Ugh. you know what I mean? So it's, and they were working, albeit two muzzle loaders. One gets passed. The other one's getting loaded, blah, blah, blah. Um, yep. Don't know the folks. Don't ask me about who it was, any of that stuff, but, um, and nothing. Right. So, and that's 90 with a 24, maybe 24, 26 inch barrel. So, yeah. And the, the crazy thing is like with our rules, cause you were in Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get down this rabbit hole, but our muzzleloader laws in Colorado, terrible. Um, they are not ethical. Uh, and I, I will 
you know, put my name behind that. I'd love to go speak about it at a, at a hearing sometime I'll stand but behind you. Yeah. The, the fact that we can't use a sabotaged bullet is just blasphemy. Yep. The, the, the powder, the powderized powder, I get that one. Sure. Whatever. The iron sights, I think that's a slippery slope as well. Like people are more accurate with a, with a scope, but I do think it, it lets them, uh, it causes them to get a little closer, which is good. I think, um, because especially with muzzle loaders today, I mean, those things are rifles. We did a, a content series at Burris where we took a muzzle loader out. We were shooting at 800 yards and we were getting an eight inch group, like sub MOA, just mm-hmm. attack driver. And so I don't think muzzle loader should be that. I like the traditional idea behind, um, the, the laws in Colorado. What I don't like is throwing any type of projectile at a living animal that doesn't have the highest chance of efficacy. Right. And so if you're going to shoot at it, why not throw the absolute best thing you can at it? So the fact that we can't use a sabotage bullet just infuriates me. Yeah. I, I, not last season, the season prior, uh, had an experience with uh, a couple bulls and a muzzy hunter. And I was nothing but appalled. And and that is saying it lightly. Yep. And, you know, you don't want PETA or the freaking crazies to get a hold of something like this, but it's true, man. It's a, you know, I've been hunting since I've been a baby. And I, my, that elk I was just telling you about after I dropped the muzzleloader pistol, went over to the muzzleloader, got this all installed on my YouTube channel. But, you know, you, I cut out a lot of this, uh, the beginning part of this just for the the whole PETA reason thing, Mm -hmm. right? Try to be PC as much as you can with the stuff. Don't give hunters a bad name, but, you know, basically first shot, absolutely perfect. 40 yards right behind the shoulder. Couldn't have been any better. Reloaded, shot him again, 60 yards right behind the shoulder. Couldn't be any better. Goes off, beds down, put another one in him, gets out of beds down, put another one in him. You know, you're talking five shots later, he's finally down. And you're just like, yeah, I know elk are tough, man. Don't get me wrong. Like you've seen them take arrows. They, they are a beast of an animal, but that, that shouldn't be the case. That if was it was a sabotaged bullet, right. it would have opened up. It would have been. Cause the thing is with our, our muzzleloader rules in Colorado, you're almost better off shooting them in the shoulder. That way you're taking bone with it yep. and you're passing that bone through the, the vital cavity. If you're shooting them behind the shoulder and it slips through two ribs and just catches skin, you're going to have a little freaking thumb prick. The exact diameter of that bullet going in is what's going to come out. And that's what, that's, what's not okay. And that's, that's what I saw, uh, not last year again, 20, what, what, what again? 2023. So, so 2021 and that was down South mm-hmm. here. So yep. what's your, uh, I was, I was probably right by you hunting deer. Shot a nice velvet buck with the bow that year up there. I think I think we were we had talked about that and we were right. I yeah, think we were in right. the same freaking unit, uh, or in that yeah, same right. triangle of units. Um, what's the YouTube channel, man? Uh, Holtz Outdoors. So that's what it is on uh, on Instagram and, and and YouTube. And you know the the channel started off as a primarily a waterfall hunting channel. That's kind of what you know my bread and butter always was. And you know, I've, I've been, I've been self-filming for 10 years, actually. I started doing it a long, long time ago and I had all these videos sitting around and, you know, I'd do a hunt and I'd send it, I'd, I'd send it on a thumb drive to my dad so he could watch cause he wanted to watch the hunts. And then we just That's got cool. sick of sending thumb drives and I started putting them up as private videos. And then my buddy's like, man, why don't you make it public? So I did. And now here we are. And I think I've got like almost 200 hunts on there, man, oh, between wow. big game and waterfall. And yeah. yeah, I just, yeah. The waterfall hunts are easy, right? You go out in the morning, you shoot like this other morning went out, you know, shoot 35 geese before work, get into the office chair by eight and call it a day. Mm-hmm. They're, they're pretty, you know, wipe your hands and it's easy day. Uh, the big game hunting is a little bit more laborious. Mm-hmm. What, uh, so you said you were at Burris, which I know, but for the, you know, and, and you made the move there and, and now you're 
right here. Uh, no, I think Quiet Cat's only 35 minutes away from me. You still over there? Or how's that going? And yep, what are you yes, doing sir. there? And Going well, man. Yeah. And so my whole like career in the outdoor space, um, I went, went and worked at Cabela's first out of college, worked there for God, four years and then went over to Burris, worked at Burris, kind of started up all their digital marketing. And then, you know, was the marketing director over there for the last few years. And then went over to quiet cat and at quiet cat, I'm, you know, I head up all their sales for, you know, hunt, fish, shoot, camp, tactical, all that, um, the whole outdoor space. And, uh, it's been really going really well. I love living up in the mountains. You know, I'm, I live here in gypsum just outside of Eagle. So not too far oh, from dude, you. You're right down the freaking thing. I thought we I should, Hey, we got the next it podcast. Up, we're bro. meeting up for a beer. Yeah, we're absolutely. Up for a beer next time. You're, I mean, you're, we're 30 Amen. minutes away. The biggest deal between you and I is Glenwood Canyon, bro. Yeah, that's, that's, a, a, hell, that's a heck of a canyon. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so I love living up here, man. I love being able to just go on an elk hunt, you know, before work, after work, whatever. Um, love. It, I miss the waterfall hunting at the Front Range had a little bit. I went out this morning and shot a couple ducks up in the mountains for the closing day of duck season, which is, it's there's still some stuff up here. It's just not the the massive beatdowns right. that you get where the, the flight path is, but. I've loved it. The, the company's great. You know, the e-bike space is growing like crazy. Um, people, especially hunters, are learning, you know, what kind of a tool they can be. And it's been, it's been fun. It was, I was going to say you opened up another rabbit hole because that's that's an interesting one because I was looking at them for my wife and I. And uh, mm-hmm. I just had some concerns in terms of legalities and I heard throttle and things like that. So I'll have to maybe I'll yep. shoot over to Quiet Cat one day, dude, and we'll go through and run oh, through the yeah. facility um, and get some visual and sit down and talk that man, if we can make that happen, that'd be really, really cool. I'd love to come. Absolutely. And talk to man. I, yeah. The, the legality of it's pretty straightforward right now. And I mean, things are changing, but you know, we take all that into consideration with the design of our bikes. So, you know, essentially without going too into detail and what I'd love to on another podcast with you, but there's three levels, right. And it has to do with the motor size and whether it has a throttle or it's just pedal assist. And we build all of our bikes so you can unplug that throttle. So you become compliant at the lowest level, oh, cool. which is key. Because if you're a public land hunter, you need it. Which is, yeah, we won't get into it. It's pretty freaking interesting to me because I was reading some of the stuff and I was scratching my head like this. Some of this don't even make sense. The regulations that they stipulate for this stuff. And then you look at what's on the mountain and you're going, what the fuck is the difference? And that one has way more, you know, horsepower than what the damn bike does. I, dude, it's crazy. So, yeah, we'll have yeah. to delve into it, man. But, brother, I appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much. Um, great conversation, dude. I, I, I'm, you know, like I said, I was excited watching that that uh, that hunt in Germany, man. I just appreciate you sharing it with the folks. Why don't you drop your socials? You already told us about uh, the Holt Outdoor on YouTube. And if people want to get a hold of you, talk Quiet Cat or talk the traditional hunt, handguns, et cetera, where can they get you, bro? Yeah. Same thing. Just hit me up on uh, Instagram at Holtz Outdoors. Um, you know, shoot me a DM, whatever. Um, I don't, my, my Facebook's private and everything like that, but, um, you know, shoot, drop a comment in the, in the YouTube videos if you have any questions and then, yeah, I think just reach out to me on social. Sweet. Be happy to, happy to talk hunting, man. I love it. Right. Yeah. That's what we love to do. So. Heck yeah. All right, my brother. Well, I appreciate it, man. I'll, uh, reach out to you here and we'll figure out a time and date, man, to get over there to gypsum and, uh, Get in that quiet cat facility and check things out, bro. Awesome guy. We'll talk to you later, man. You have a good night. Thank you too, man. We'll talk to you.